You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we are joined by Alana Collin. Alana Collin wrote the book 10% Human. And what does that mean? If you guys have not read this book, if you've not come across this book that was published in 2015, I'm going to read you just the the description of it because it's pretty fascinating. You are 10% human. For every one of the cells that makes up the vessel that you call your body, there are nine imposter cells hitching a ride. You are not just flesh and blood, muscle and bone, brain and skin, but also bacteria and fungi. Over a lifetime, you will carry the equivalent of five African elephants in microbes. You are not an individual, but a colony. In this riveting, shocking, and beautiful read written book, biologist Alana Collin draws on the latest scientific research to show how our personal colony of microbes influences our weight, our immune system, our mental health, and even our choice of partner. Pretty fascinating content. And she and I, even though she's written this book a while ago, some of the data from her book is really has been adopted by the mass, especially in biohacking and, and human performance and nutrition. The fact that we are more than just our human cells. Uh, we sort of take it for granted now. And a lot of people talk about, oh, well, we're just 10% human after all. So I wanted to go to the source and have a conversation with her about what, what she means. And it was a really cool conversation. You know, um, she's a skeptic of the assumption that diversity in microbiome in the gut is the answer for optimal health. You know, we, we're told to eat the rainbow, to populate our gut with lots of different, um, not only uh, vegetables and meats, that will give us a a diversity for our microbiome, but there are examples why that doesn't always work. She gives us a lot of tips to improve our microbiome, and some of those things are vaginal births, breastfeeding, uh, not washing your hands or your surfaces in your home with antibacterial soap, and so we dig into that. Some of the other stuff that we dig into in this podcast include the fact that koalas feed their baby joeys, baby koalas, poop, fecal matter, because it's the only, they need that element of their microbiome uh, to digest eucalyptus leaves. So uh, koala mommies give baby koalas poop, (laughs) which I thought was just a fascinating fact. Uh, She's also working on a book coming up called Fatology, and because she's British, she says it in the most charming accent, fatology, which sounds a lot better than an American pronunciation of the book, fat, fatology, fatology. So uh, she's talking um, in this in this podcast and in the book that she's reading about what effect does microbes, microbes, gut microbiome, what effect does that have on our, um, on our weight gain, on the, on the obesity epidemic that, epidemic that just continues to, continues to grow for people. No pun intended. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Sorry I got this one out late. It's been uh, summertime in the Pacific Northwest, so I've been a kind of a busy boy. I've been a lot of running around, and I caught a summer cold. Having kids, man. telling you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. Every single time that you listen, um, an angel gets its wings, and... (laughs) Now I just need to get to the podcast with ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, 10% human author, Alana Collin. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Alana Collin, the author of 10% Human. Alana, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to dive into this conversation, and I know that it's been a bit since uh, since you've published uh, 10% Human, um, so mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate you being willing to to join us on this podcast and, and have this conversation. Um, it struck me 
that since your book was published, it's now a statistic or a a, a figure mm-hmm. that a lot of people really reference and point to. So it's just, yeah, we're 10% human after all when people are talking about anything dealing with the gut. Um did you do you notice that same thing? Do you hear that re- your book being referenced as frequently as I do? Um, I actually, well, of course, people talk to me about my book, and I end up talking about it all the time. You know, when even with people who have nothing to do with science or um, or my work, but um, I don't actually hear that figure that much. And um, Somewhat irritatingly, someone revised that figure just a couple of years after I published the book. So the figure is probably something more like 50% human these days, um, partly because of a change in the way we count, mostly because of a change in the way we count human cells, I think. Um, so, but, you know, the, the point still stands that we are um, full of microbes and they have a massive impact on our, on our health and on our lives, um, regardless of exactly how many there are. Can you walk our listeners through how you initially got to the figure of of 10%? Uh, that was just the widely quoted figure at the time. Um, pretty much when I came across this, um, this field, pretty much every um, scientific article started with the, this concept that there are 10 times as many um, bacteria or microbes as uh, human cells. And obviously the weight and the mass of those is completely different. The human cells are much bigger and they weigh more, but in terms of numbers, that's what it is. But I, I suspect that it will change again in the future. I have no doubt it will change again in the future, especially if people start taking viruses very seriously as part of them, um, you know, as playing a significant role in running our body as well. So, um, yeah. Is the reason why it's gone from 10 to 50 because of the weight? Is that part of the measurement uh, justification now? No? No, I don't believe so. I think it's simply just, um, it's all extrapolation. And it's simply just working out those numbers again with more accurate um, counts of how many cells are in any given volume of bit of body or, you know, particular organ type and so on. And I think it also includes... It takes into account the number of cells in blood, which is quite different density from the number of cells in the rest of the body. Um, so, yeah, it's very much subject to change, I think. Such as such as science, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Not like I'm a scientist at all. I just, you know, makes sense. Can you explain? <laughs> let's just start baby steps. Uh, what is what is a microbe? Uh, so a microbe is um, a very old kind of organism, completely different from the animal kingdom. There are various different kinds of um, microbes. The, the ones that we're usually talking about when we talk about the microbiome are bacteria, um, which is uh, a whole different kingdom. They're very simple one-celled organisms that um, just reproduce by doubling. Um, there are lots of different kinds of them. And then we're also talking about another kingdom called the Archaea, which again are um, simple single-celled organisms, very, um, very old group, but different lineage from the bacteria. And then we are also occasionally talking about fungi um, and it stretches to viruses as well, which don't technically count as living organisms, but, um, you know, they play some kind of active role in the human body as well. Do you have a favorite microbe? <laughs> um, do I have a favorite microbe? I can't say that I do, you know. <laughs> I quite like E. coli for, because everyone thinks it's bad, but actually there are plenty of strains which are perfectly healthy and normal living in the body. Um, but yeah, not, not other than that. <laughs> so maybe you've got an affinity for E. coli because it's maybe just a little bit under, misunderstood. Sorry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I like to throw people. Well, me too. Asking a question like, what's your favorite microbe? (laughs) So obviously the the work of your book aims to illuminate this topic that that I think so – I see a shift in the awareness of the importance of 
microbiome, especially in the gut. And what we know about the gut-brain connection now, again, as a as a as a biohacking op- podcast host and um, guy like this, of course, I'm interested in this. But um, when it comes to the role of what these microbes do, both in our body and on our skin and the outside of our body, can you maybe just briefly explain the influence that that microbes can have on us? Yeah, so um, the first thing to understand is that we have evolved with microbes forever, since before we were humans. Um, and so they are, it's almost like they're part of us. They're part of the running of our bodies. Our bodies expect them to be there. We have evolved with the anticipation of going along in our lives with these microbes and that means that they are fundamental to the way that our bodies work um so the the they are as you say they are all over us and even parts of us that were originally thought to be kind of sterile like the lungs the bladder the uterus that kind of thing are now known also to have um maybe a smaller but still a distinct microbiome And um, so basically every surface that we have, internal and external surface, has a microbiome of its own. And they're very variable. But I would say um, the most significant uh, role that they play is is in interacting with our immune systems, um, which are mostly found in our guts. So there's, um, I think about 70% of the immune system is sort of based around uh, the gut and uh, microbes in the gut have a huge say in what the immune system knows about and worries about. Um, so that that basically determines what our bodies consider to be dangerous and what our bodies consider to be safe. So the kind of old way of looking at the immune system was that something was either us or not us. So they call it self or non-self. Um, but actually, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because not only do you need your body to tolerate its own cells, you also need it to tolerate your food, the air you breathe, you know, anything that you come into contact with that, you know, for example, pollen, it's inherently not dangerous and our body shouldn't react to it when they encounter it. Um, and also on the on the flip side, um, there are things that are non that are self that we don't want in our bodies. For example, cancer cells, they, are, they come from our own cells, but they shouldn't be there. So the immune system needs to learn what to react to, what to try and get rid of, and what to allow to pass through without causing any problems. And uh, our microbiomes play a huge role in determining um, what is considered safe and what is considered dangerous, um, which is why many of the um, illnesses that we are now seeing in the Western world are um, connected with the immune system and with damage to the microbes and therefore the immune system not really knowing um, what to do. So allergies and autoimmunity are the, the most obvious examples of that. Um, as for other parts of the body, you mentioned the skin. Um, yeah, microbes completely cover your skin and you have different collections of microbes in different areas. Um, so you know, under your arms, for example, would be different from the um, top of your forearms because the environment is different, the skin type is different, the um, microclimate, if you like, is different, and um, they have a different role to play. So um, you're you're looking at all sorts of different species um, interacting in different ways and doing different jobs. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the immune system and the role that microbes play. And what I'm hearing you say is that they play a different role, they react in a different way for different reasons. Does that imply that we should have more different types of of microbes especially in our gut in order for our immune systems to be stronger? That's quite a tricky question, a complex question, and I don't think that we really have the answer. There's, there has been a lot of chat about how diversity is important, so that the more different kinds of microbes you have, the, the healthier you are. Um, 
whether that will bear up in time, I'm not sure. Um, it's certainly the case that people in the West and um, seem to have a different kind of um, makeup of microbes than people in uh, pre-industrialized places. And of course, we don't quite know cause and effect, and we don't know cause and effect when it comes to working out which things cause which illnesses. But um, it seems to be that in terms of good immune health and good metabolic health, then perhaps the microbes that we have in our guts in the West are not um, helping us out as much as the gut, the microbes that people have in pre-industrial countries. Um, so the diversity question, I think, is yet to be answered. Um, the, and, and anyway, how you would go about, you know, massively increasing the diversity People talk about eating a very wide variety of foods, um, which makes a lot of sense. But I have to say I have some um, anecdotal scepticism about that because the the variety of foods that people eat in places where they don't have supermarkets shipping things in from all over the world, what, regardless of the season, is going to be much smaller than what we have available to us. So it, it doesn't strike me as making sense that they would therefore eat a greater diversity and therefore have a greater diversity of, of microbes. So we'll see how that plays out, I think. Yeah, when I think about, you know, I'm trying to think of examples of cultures like like the like the Inouye people, you know, um, up in the Yukon who subsist on mostly, you know, whale blubber. They're not eating a, a vast variety of foods. They're they're eating kind of they're eating kind of one thing or at yeah. least one type of thing, um, and they're relatively healthy and have low levels of cavities and you know their cancer levels are, are lower. And so that begs the question: like, well, they're not eating mangoes or corn on the cob, mm -hmm. but they're but they're resilient. Their immunity is strong. So yeah, I guess it's it sort of it sort of box in the face of this conception that you're supposed to eat the eat for the rainbow because it's supposed to help you. Cause that's, that's a, maybe they're an outlier, but yeah, that, that doesn't make sense to me either. Right. Yeah. And you know, you see people will often say to me, Oh, but people die really early in pre-industrial countries. So it can't be good for them. Um, but it's worth pointing out that the, um, longevity life expectancy in, in some kind, in, countries where people where the life expectancy is lower um, that's often massively skewed by how many people die young from preventable diseases infectious diseases and so on um, and the people who do manage to live um, into old age often do so lean and healthy and uh, with very little sign of heart disease very low incidence of cancer that kind of thing and yet they'll probably um, be eating seasonally and therefore they'll be eating a lot of the same thing repeatedly for weeks at a time. Um, you know, maybe a five to 10 foods rather than the, you know, God knows how many, 50 to 100 that we have the opportunity to eat in um, the Western world. And, and yet they are still metabolically and immunologically healthy. So, yeah, that doesn't quite stack up for me. Yeah, it's good. Good, good, healthy skepticism. Question, that's what science is about. Do you what? I, I'm I'm super curious. How is it that you became interested in this topic? Um. Well, I explained it at the, at the start of my book. I this is it's slightly off topic from what I trained in. So I I started as an evolutionary biologist, which is a great background to have. Um. I did a PhD in evolutionary biology of bats. Um. And I. I was doing a lot of field work and catching bats around the world. And when I was working in Malaysia um, a long time ago, I was bitten all over my ankles and feet by a lot of ticks. And, um, you know, I, I was aware that you can get diseases from ticks and I was uh, fairly cautious about what to do. So I sort of dealt with my bats and then went back and removed all these ticks and, uh, and hoped <laughs> for a while. That nothing would happen and was looking out for um, various signs that something had gone wrong and um, sure enough a short time later I it did feel very ill I became very achy very tired had um, painful joints 
and I um, I was just unable to live my normal life. I then went through a ridiculously long process of trying to get a diagnosis, um, and eventually uh, someone felt that I had some kind of tick-borne um, illness, and I was given an enormous amount of um, antibiotics. And I also had, um, by this point, a bone, some kind of strange bone infection in my foot. And so I was given intravenous antibiotics and I was, they put some an antibiotic beads inside my toe bone. Um, so that kind of helped and I started to feel a lot better and my, my toe was fixed. But I then started to get a load of new symptoms, which I'd never had before. And, you know, I was in my late 20s at this point and a long time after the tick bites and um, sort of wondering why stuff wasn't working, why I was getting infections, why did I have acne suddenly? And every time I tried to come off the antibiotics, stuff flared up again. I got hay fever for the first time as well. And, um, and at that point, I started looking into it. I went to see my GP and I said, could it be that I've damaged my microbes? And he said, no, that's not a thing. And I said, oh, well, I, I kind of think it might be a thing. And I was so, <laughs> I was so annoyed by how, um, by how dismissive he was of this idea that I, being a scientist, of course, went straight back home and looked on Google Scholar for whether there were any papers written on whether you could damage your microbes. And um, I hit this, you know, that just there were just dozens of results and, you know, all in nature and science. And suddenly I realized that there was, this was a huge new field that I had stumbled across. Um, and that it, indeed it was possible to damage your microbes and it seemed like it was very important for your health. So I, um, at the time I was working on writing another book and I just could not stop reading about microbes. So I uh, eventually realized that I should quit the other book and start writing a book about microbes instead. Um, so I, you know, at that point it was, it was quite nice because the field was new. So it was, it was not all that difficult to read everything that had been written on it. And um, I had a great time going and interviewing uh, loads of scientists and understanding it from the bottom up and kind of um, thinking about the evolutionary biology behind it as well was um, really instructive. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. Can you, can you tell us more about the sort of co-evolution of, of microbes and humans? Because in the book you say, like, before we were humans, we were evolving alongside these microbes. How does, uh, can you tell us a little bit more? I think that's just so, that's just so fascinating. Right. Well, I mean, microbes are, are um, inhabiting pretty much every organism that they can squeeze themselves onto. Um, so in the book, I talk about uh, loads of examples of, um, of vertebrates and even invertebrates using microbes or coexisting with microbes and how they uh, help them to do various things. And um, the same is true of, you know, so many, uh, for example, um, koalas, koala mums will feed their new joeys um, a little bit of poo, which is called pap. And um, it's basically a microbial cocktail that they give to the joey in, because it's so difficult to digest eucalyptus leaves that they need these specialized microbes to do it. The, the, the koala's um, genome alone cannot do it. So they don't make the enzymes to do it. So they need microbes in order to make those enzymes so that they can eat it. So without, without their microbes, koalas are nothing. They, they can't exist. And there, you know, there are absolutely loads of examples along, along those lines. And of course, for humans, it's no different that whatever we were before and before and before, we always have microbes alongside us and, and therefore their genomes and their ways of doing things, their enzymes are crucial to um, running our bodies. Yeah. Can you imagine the first koala that was like, hey, like, I need to feed you some of this poo because otherwise, like, <laughs> that I always worry about that stuff. Like, who was the, who decided which koala? Like, how did they know? Fascinating to me. Does the, um, I know how it is in, in the States, and I wonder if it's the same thing for you in the UK, this 
sterilization of our environment, sterilization of our food, um, that's really keeping us from consuming and using these essential microbes that we that we need to not only survive but th- thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hand sanitizer. Um, you know, disinfectant sprays, cleaning materials. Is it is it the same in is it the same in the UK? Is there a is there a sterilization of yeah? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's not quite as extreme as it is in the US. When I when I've uh, been to the US and you just see hand san- sanitizers everywhere. You know, and you walk into a building and there's there's one by the door, and that's not the case in the UK. Um, I think I think it's tricky because. We, we are a, a species that's really prone to disease because we hang out together a lot in really small places, spaces and um, we travel around a lot. So stuff does get passed between us. And I, and I completely, especially as the mother of a toddler, I completely understand the de- desire to not get yet another cold and, um, and to <laughs> not be covered in other people's germs. So there is this really tricky balance to be found between keeping clean enough that you don't get ill and not being so clean that you're not that you're that like you say you're sterile and you're not exposing yourself to anything um, anything that could be good and could be um, contributing to how your body should run. Um, I think there are a few ways that you can that you can try and get that balance right, things that you can change to do that. And one is that when you're, um, when you're cleaning things, you don't actually need antibacterial products. You don't need to kill bacteria um, to be clean. You can remove the bacteria and remove, physically remove the bacteria and physically remove the thing that the bacteria are living on. So, for example, if you are cleaning your kitchen, well, let's take hands, actually. Hands is a good example. If you're cleaning, if you're washing your hands, you can wash your hands with warm water and regular soap. And what you're doing when you do that is you're loosening the, all the greases and whatever has got on your hands. So getting the food off your hands and um, preventing the bacteria that don't belong there from having anything to feed on. So you're taking it back to just the bacteria that live on your own skin and, and you'll remove some of those, but they'll regrow quite quickly and repopulate your, your hands. Um, there's basically no point using antibacterial soap because you'd have to steep your hands in it for quite a while for it to have any impact on, you know, breaking, killing those bacteria anyway. And you're also coating yourself in something that, that you may then consume if you, you know, pick something up and you put it into your body so you're putting antibacterials into your gut um, which is seems to be um, not a great idea when it comes to antibiotic resistance as well um, which is obviously a big deal uh, so yeah I think that the, the first thing I would say is reconsider which products you're using to clean you can clean using um, soaps which simply lift grease and oils off surfaces rather than actually killing bacteria and the bacteria will come with it because there's nothing for them to live on if there's no no food no grease no oil no whatever let's that's uh, fascinating I, i assume that there are people listening to this right now that have never heard this sort of information and they're like what are you talking about no way you know i think i think a lot of our listeners are are hip to it um and especially um, you know, the harm of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk a little bit about antibiotics and, and the damage that's done? Cause I've heard some pretty staggering stats about, you know, one cycle, one 10 day cycle of antibiotics sets your gut upsets, uh, wrecks your gut microbiome for like six months or something like that. Yeah, and, and I'm not asking you to like state stats like that, but can you talk, tell us a little bit about about the dangers of antibiotics? Uh, well, anyone who's had antibiotics, particularly some kinds, will know that they can really mess you up in the short term um, because they, you know, you may be taking it for a chest infection or an ear infection or whatever. It could be quite far away from your gut, but you put them into your gut, and um, some of them will 
you know, kill the bacteria living in your gut. And the result of that is diarrhea. And um, it's, you know, one of the major side effects of antibiotics, one of the major reasons that people don't like taking it. Um, so it's quite clear that they have an impact um, quite quickly. Um, and like you say, yeah, there are studies that have shown that it that impact lasts for a long time and um, that even just a few days of taking antibiotics can have such an impact. There are also studies that show that your gut can bounce back from it really quickly. So I suspect that it has... Um, it has its variable. It depends which antibiotics. It depends on the state of your gut in the first place. It maybe depends on whether you have an appendix or not and whether your gut can repopulate. Um, probably just depends on your immune system helping the microbes to reestablish themselves. All sorts of stuff could be playing into how quickly any given individual's gut will, um, will rebound from a course of antibiotics. But there are a number of associations, particularly in children, between taking antibiotics and, and taking multiple courses of antibiotics in a short period of time and poor health, um, uh, especially over time. So uh, it's definitely something that we're learning more about and that we need to um, work on ways to fix that damage or mitigate against that damage. And also we certainly need for, for not only for the collateral damage that we do to our microbes, but in terms of antibiotic resistance, we need to reduce the use of unnecessary antibiotics. And by that, I don't mean that someone should avoid them at all costs and say that they're evil and that you know they shouldn't be touched. They are life-saving, genuinely life-saving drugs, but we should be taking them when there are serious effects, you know, potential effects of an illness. Um, that we need to avoid rather than because we want a day shorter, you know, cold, not that a cold can be treated with antibiotics, but a day shorter of any small illness or, you know, they're, they're often prescribed for colds and flu when colds and flu are caused by viruses and antibiotics will do nothing. In fact, they'll probably make it harder for your body to recover. Um, so yeah, right. that, that's the real key is, is not that we should just say, oh no, antibiotics are terrible, don't touch them. We should be um, being very careful about when when we use them and a bit more judicious. Yeah, you're right. They save lives, and also we should be we should be researching them extensively and thinking very critically about when it is really the right time to be using them or not. I wonder for you as the as the mother of a two year old, how has being a parent shifted your perspective on cooties <laughs> <laughs> um by cooties you mean illnesses <laughs> i mean um i mean no i guess i mean like how when she puts her hand in her mouth where she picks stuff up when to wash her hands when not to wash her hands do you wash her face with soap do you you know okay so you can yeah it's, it's really interesting because it does a, um, a practical spin on stuff that before when I when I was writing my book was all just, um, you know, theory with a, with a child in particular. Um, I'm also quite lucky that she's very nearly three and she has yet to have antibiotics. I have twice been to the doctor and um, been prescribed antibiotics for her and both times I've gone to get them and then kept them and watched and waited because... I didn't. I didn't want to do it, and I. Uh, but I, of course, I was willing to if I thought that there was a danger to her, and so I was taking it, you know, half hour by half hour, as to you know, just keeping a track of her temperature and her, um, her the how distressed she was and that kind of thing, working out whether I was going to do it or not. And um, on one of those occasions, I remember um, I went to get the antibiotics. And my neighbor was helping me out and she uh, looking after her and she said um, she saw her the next morning and she said, wow, I guess you decided to, to give her the antibiotics then because she was so much better in the morning. And I said, no, I actually didn't. And had I given her them, I would have absolutely gone, wow, this they are they've just changed everything. But in. I, ah. um, so um, in terms of, um, you know, hand washing and so on. As an evolutionary biologist, I can tell you that if if uh, it was so dangerous for a baby to put their hands in their own mouth, 
then babies wouldn't put their hands in their mouths because they would, you know, if that behavior led to them getting very sick and dying, then the babies who had the genes that told them to put their hands in their mouths would have died and there wouldn't be more humans putting their hands in their mouths. And that's not to say that there will never be a baby who will get an illness that will kill it from putting its hands in their mouth, but that overall the majority of them are getting away with it or benefiting from it. And, you know, as, as you'll know, as a parent yourself, they put everything in their mouths. <laughs> and um, I personally would rather that my child put something in its mouth and got a load of microbes than got a load of chemicals. And, um, and so I try not to worry about it. Uh, I think when you, the, the, the difference, the, the point that that breaks down is when you think that they've been touching something that is actually more likely to be a risk. So, um, for example, I would always wash my hands after getting off public transport. There are just so many germs on public transport. I, I can't be bothered with it. I don't need that particular dose of, um, of good microbes, <laughs> the bad microbes. And, you know, if my daughter's been playing in the soil outside in my garden, that's dirt to Americans, um, then I would um, I would wash her hands after that because I have cats and I don't want her to be getting cat poo on her hands and, and then eating that. Um, so, you know, there's again, it's a balance and it's not a, you know, this is, t is terrible. You should never wash your hands. You should just eat, eat dirt. But... <laughs> On the other hand, I think there's some you can probably get away with a fair amount of uncleanliness, and it's and it's not going to be a problem. I love I love your answer to that, explaining the evolutionary biologist take on babies' <laughs> hands and mouths. Like, if enough generations of babies, those dumb babies that put their hands in their mouth, if it killed them. That genetic uh, genetic line would fall off. They wouldn't survive. Yeah. So the babies that didn't put their hands in their mouth. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh, man. I want to go back to something that you said about the appendix and the role that the appendix plays. Can you can you illuminate that for me? Uh, yeah. So um, I, I think probably most people still assume that the appendix is a completely unnecessary little blip in the gut. Um, so it's down on usually down on your the right hand corner of your torso. And it's um, a little kind of balloon end sticking off from your um, your colon, uh, your large intestine. And um, many people have them removed, especially in the 70s and 80s. Um, huge numbers of people had them removed um, for any kind of pain. Or even when someone was doing some other kind of gut surgery, they'd just whip the appendix out because why not? And... Um, and again, it's one of those evolutionary things where you think, well, if it's still there, then maybe it has a purpose and maybe it's actually yeah. been selected for. Um, I think people assume that, oh, it's just left over and it's not really necessary. But um, what we now know is that the appendix is almost like a little safe house for microbes. So if you were to get a, um, a, a diarrheal infection and um, basically your gut gets completely washed out by diarrhea and you lose all the microbes in there then once you've recovered your microbes repopulate your gut from your appendix um, and we also know that when people have their appendix removed um, they do see an increase in incidence of various illnesses um, including some not so fun stuff. Some, I, I believe a, there's a blood cancer that is increased in people with their appendix removed. Don't quote me on that. I've quoted myself on that now. Um, but yeah, there are some, there are significant um, changes in, um, in illness risk if you have your appendix removed. So that suggests it is important to your health. I suppose in your research in in writing this book and forthcoming books and the way that you think about the world as an evolutionary biologist the way that you think about the world is very logical right like <laughs> it's still there so there's like it's doing something uh -huh. i just it's just really fascinating to me you know like um there's a guy named um uh, uh gad sod or god sad um, evolutionary biologist and it's a lot about like um, 
evolutionary psychology and gender roles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And everything is just so it's so it's so logical. It's so like, well, it's the, it's like this for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason why uh, there's I, I don't know. Um, there's really no question there. It's just me being excited to be talking <laughs> to an evolutionary biologist. It is. Much and back and and and. And, yeah, I should I should caution that it sometimes does get um, over extrapolated. So there's a sort of um, uh, a joke that always goes around amongst biology undergraduates about what you can blame um, on evolution. So um, an example that comes to mind is saying that the reason that teenagers have spots is to stop them from having sex because then they won't have babies when they're too young to look after them. Which is, yeah, there's some logic there, but also it's probably taking it too far. Um, so I, yeah. yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to think that there are some um, cultural norms that could do with changing that can't be blamed on on evolution, <laughs> as well yeah. as things that are logical. Speaking of speaking of the face and the microbiome, I've been using. Um, are you familiar with the product called Mother Dirt? Yes, I am familiar with it. I haven't used it myself, but yeah. I love it. I love it. It's And for those of you that don't know, Mother Dirt is a probiotic face spray. And the the you can look it up for yourself. I'll put it in the show notes. But the, the, the explanation is like people who have uh, skin issues, they wash their face a lot because they think it's unclean, because they want to make sure that they're blemish-free. And so they're washing their face twice a day with antibacterial soap and what that does is it destroys the natural population of microbes on your face and what the probiotic spray from mother dirt does and they have like a face wash and a shampoo is it literally deposits new bacteria you have to refrigerate it deposits new bacteria on your face to like balance out your skin and after like the first few days my skin was glowing it looked healthy and and so yeah just uh I, I think Again, I think I made microbes it, actually. Did it used to be called AO Biome or AO Plus? Yes. Yes, I have tried it. I, yes. I um I was I think I interviewed um I did interview the guy that started that company. Um and yeah, it's really interesting and I and I completely agree that it makes way more sense um to maintain um a microbiome on your face than to be washing with soaps and especially the really harsh stuff that people people use when they have skin problems. It's really difficult because it is a vicious cycle, of course. Um, and, right. um, and it's kind of interesting how he came up with that product as well because I think originally he noticed that um, that there was a that horses really liked rolling in the dirt to get clean. That was like the way they bathed was to roll to you know get down on the ground and and rub themselves on on dirt and um he i think it was he was a, already a microbiologist and he's just started thinking about why they would do that and um and somehow came up with the idea that there were microbes living in the dirt that could then help the, the skin the horse's skin to keep clean and then the mother dirt originally, or the AO biome, was made from his bacteria only that he cultured, and um, and so that my my skepticism there would be that maybe his bacteria isn't the right bacteria for your face. Um, but then on the other hand, maybe it's better than the bacteria that you've already got in your face if you're struggling with your skin. So yeah, always worth a go, I reckon. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I'll spray that guy's cooties <laughs> on my face. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Interesting. Um, in the book, you you walk through some some things, some things we all can do. You know, obviously, one is not using not using antibacterial soap. The other is not is is not using antibacterial cleaning supplies. What are some other things that we can do to maintain or optimize the health of the microbes in 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 our body and on our body or in our environment even um i think the the main other thing other than avoiding unnecessary antibiotics and and antibacterial cleaners and so on is um is eating fiber eating a plant-based diet um and that's not to say that you shouldn't eat any animal foods it's just that we tend to eat um 
very much less fiber than humans are perhaps supposed to be eating or have evolved to eat. Um, so like a rough estimate, um, on average, people eat around 15 grams of fiber per day in, in um, the US, UK. And um, it's thought that people in pre-industrial societies and also um, people living, say, 150, 200 years ago, would have eaten something like 150 grams of fiber a day. So maybe 10 times the amount that we're eating now. Whoa. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's partly because they just didn't eat so much um, they didn't eat so much meat because it wasn't so readily available or, or animal products generally. And, and partly because of the types of um, plant foods that they had available and the ways that they could be prepared, perhaps. Um, so we now eat, of course, a lot of refined um, plant products like white flour, white pasta, white rice. Um, and in the past, we would have probably eaten a lot more of the unrefined brown versions of those um, of those foods. And alongside just generally eating more plant-based foods, more vegetables, more fruit, more grains. Um, I, I expect you have a lot of people who follow a paleo diet. Um, and um, I think that's fine because people have to find what works for them. And we have to bear in mind that um, there may be damage that's already been done to people's um, gut microbes and also to their bodies. And so at some point you just have to find what works. But I think probably for many, um, many humans and particularly for humans who come from a, um, uh, an agricultural lineage, um, as many people who descended from Europeans do, um, the paleo diet may be going back a bit far and a diet which includes uh, grains and dairy um, should should, in theory, if if everything was well, be um, one that works for them. Uh, but I completely understand that people are, sometimes just don't find it does work anymore uh, if something's already gone wrong. Yeah. The, another one, another couple of ideas that jumped out to me were, that I noted was um, the importance of breastfeeding. Yeah, right. So, it, yeah, if you're if you're going to become a parent, then um, there's a huge amount that you can that you can know about um, microbes that will benefit your children. Um, and I found out all this stuff just before I had my first child. Um, so um, babies get their, it's a bit like the koalas. Babies get their first dose of uh, microbes from their mums. They probably get a few when they're in the in the womb, but when they emerge, they get a, a face full of microbes, um, and that's vaginal ones, but also fecal ones. And then their skin, you know, the moment that they're put onto the mother's body, um, their skin will be covered in the mother's skin microbes as well as vaginal microbes, and their um, digestive tract will just instantly start filling with um, vaginal microbes and um, there are a lot of microbes that, um, that vaginal microbes that are there to help the baby to digest milk so um, species like lactobacillus are um, really prevalent um, and and they basically just break down lactose and and that's exactly what a baby needs when it's about to have a diet of, of breast milk um, so that's pretty important and obviously what the the flip side of that is when people have a, a cesarean section and um, the baby is not exposed to all of those microbes and is instead exposed to um, probably first skin microbes but then also um, you know operating theatre uh, the microbes of the doctors and nurses who are helping to do the c-section um, you know potentially microbes of the father first um, whereas it would possibly more normally be the mother uh, and again it's like antibiotics c-sections are genuinely life-saving procedures that some mums and some babies need but if we can um, reduce the rate of unnecessary ones and it's quite high the world health organization says that maybe 10 to 15 percent of births should be by c-section um, in order to preserve the health of mothers and babies and um in developed countries, the rate is typically more like 25 to 30%. In some places, it's way higher. In some areas of New York, it's 80 to 90% C-section. In um, much of Brazil, shockingly, it's 95% C-section. Almost nobody has a, a baby vaginally anymore. 
Um, and so those those are things that probably need to uh, to come down and to change. Um, and then, as you mentioned, breast milk is um, it, you know designed it's evolved in order to support a baby's health, and it has many aspects to it that do that, and many of them are specific to supporting a healthy microbiome in the baby. So there are some. Uh, an interesting one is that the presence of these sugars called oligosaccharides, which are kind of medium-sized sugars, and the baby can't digest these. It doesn't have enzymes to digest them. So it was always a bit of a question, what are they doing in there? Because they're obviously useless because babies can't make use of them. Um, but then it became known that, in fact, those sugars, um, for one thing, they help to block the um, block pathogenic bacteria, so bad bacteria, from taking hold in the gut. And also they feed good bacteria and the good bacteria break them down using their enzymes and that helps the baby to establish a, a healthy healthy microbiome going forward. Um, and there are a number of other aspects of breast milk that also help the microbiome to develop. Um, you can tell whether a baby is breastfed or formula fed from, from its microbiome. And I think in, in some studies they found that you can tell whether a baby is born by C-section or vaginally. Um, and once again, formula is life-saving, super important, enables people to uh, to have babies. But if there's a choice, if you can do it, then breastfeeding will give your baby a, a better microbiome going forward than than formula feeding will. It makes it makes logical sense. Again, the other the other things that that I have made a point of in my life and in my family to to populate my gut specifically. Um, with with uh, with greater diversity is to eat fermented foods, um, kimchi, sauerkraut, pickles, which aren't technically fermented really, but um, you know drink eat, eat a lot of kefir. My wife makes homemade kefir. We make homemade kombucha, um, f- and we all take a, a probiotic, a pill form of probiotic. Um, is that is that in in is that enough? I know that you're not a nutritionist, but if if I if I'm kind of staying staying away from antibiotics, um, not using antibacterial soap, um, and I'm just eating a bunch of uh, fermented foods and taking a probiotic, am I doing everything that I can to encourage um, a diverse microbiome, or am I missing out on some things? Uh, no, I think you're probably doing just about as much as you can. I think that there are inherent uh, limitations from living where we live and that you're it's pretty hard to get around those. Um, I think the other thing that I would say um, is I, I try to eat organic. Um, it's difficult to do that here. There's a lot of food that is not organic and it's, you know, you have to, I would have to spend a lot of time shopping every week in order to get all like organic food. But um, I suspect that um, pesticides and so on reduce the um, natural microbes found on food and um, and in that eating them will reduce your microbiome even further. Um, and of course, eating fiber. Um, so I think you're doing pretty well, actually. I don't do I don't do as well as you. Um, I do. I also kind of I, th- I think every there are every culture kind of has its own um, fermented foods and that probably even if you're just using one set of fermented foods then you're you're getting something from it so I I just try to eat yogurt every day um, along with fiber um, I I suspect your um, your listeners are pretty sophisticated with this stuff already but if for anyone who's not like I wasn't um, a very simple way to get a lot of fiber and a lot of goodness for microbes is to eat um, muesli, like a birch and muesli. So you can eat multiple grain types in one go, um, add nuts and seeds of all sorts of different kinds, add some fruit, um, you know, whatever. You can you can change it as often as you like to keep it interesting and then add some milk and some yogurt and your Probably in, you know, if you switch from, let's say, eating a branded cereal, you may be having 
something like four grams of fiber. And then you, if you eat a bowl of music like that, you might be getting 25 to 35 grams of fiber in that bowl. So that is, you're, you're probably getting your daily recommended amount of fiber in one breakfast. And it tastes good. <laughs> That's good advice. Yeah, I, you know, mowing down raw kale um, to get the sure. fiber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we hit the record button, you and I were chatting about your, your project, which has just started. Can we start to talk <laughs> about it a little tiny bit or is it still too early? Um, I'll, yeah, I'll happily talk about it a tiny bit. Um, I wish it was further on than it is. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm working on a book that is currently called Fatology. Um, um, probably the subtitle will be, uh, why fat is not all about food. Um, and it's putting forward some new understanding of the other things that play into why people gain weight. Um, so it's something that came out of 10% Human writing about gut microbes and their role in obesity, which is something that we haven't really touched on tonight. But um, it's it's quite amazing how much how important they appear to be. And in talking to some scientists around that topic, I realised that there are some. Um, some other things that are playing into why people gain weight that don't have to do with how much they eat and how much they exercise. Um, and in fact, maybe determining how much they eat and how much they exercise. Yeah, so the, so microbes play into how much you, you weigh. And um, I there are several other things. So uh, the amount of sleep that you get and when you sleep can seem can have an impact on your weight as well as uh, your exposure to environmental chemicals. There's some new science that's suggesting that um, exposure to chemicals changes the way the metabolism works and the way that we um, store energy as, as fat tissue. And um, also I'm writing a little bit about genetics and how they um, underpin our uh, likelihood of, of gaining weight. Can we can we take a few minutes to, to dive into the role that microbes play in obesity just for a minute? Sure, yeah. Whew. Um, okay. Uh, gosh, what can I tell you on that topic? So um, I think it, it, this, this area of research came out of something quite interesting, which was... Um, well, simply that when you take germ-free mice, which are mice that have been raised in a lab without any microbes inside their bodies at all, so they're completely sterile, they're kept in sterile environments, they're fed sterile food, so they don't have a single microbe living inside them. And when you take those microbes, uh, those mice and put microbes into them, over the course of like two weeks, they gain 30% of their weight. So they, they suddenly become fat just because they have microbes in them. So that tells you um, about how, how big a role your microbes play in digesting your food. It's basically happening um, because, I mean, the, the most basic part of it is that the microbes are able to extract more nutrients from your food than you are able to do on your own. The other part of it, though, is that they... Um, are processing, they're telling the mouse's body to process that food differently and to store the energy differently. Um, so interestingly, if you take microbes from an obese person and put them in a mouse and you take microbes from that obese person's identical twin sister who is lean and put them in a mouse, the um, the mouse given the lean microbes will stay lean and the mouse given the obese microbes will become obese. Um, so clearly the microbes are determining, there's nothing else, the mice are identical, the humans are identical, the only difference is the microbes that they've received. Um, and those microbes are telling that mouse's body whether to get fat or not. Um, and so, and then if you give them antibiotics, they go, they, the microbes go away and they go back to being lean again. And so that might make you think that you want antibiotics and you want to get rid of all your microbes because that will help you to stay lean. But unfortunately, of course. Yeah, wait, wait, what? <laughs> right, right. And, and there's right. Still, still a lot to be understood about how this works. Um, but we, we do know that there's 
there are some genes that are being influenced by microbes and by the 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 health of the gut lining generally um, that determine how keen fat cells are to take on more fat and how keen they are to divide or to get bigger. Um, so that's a, a definitely an area for um, much research. And there are certain microbes in particular that seem to be playing a bigger role in that than others, um, which I'm reluctant to go into because I'm not sure I can remember all the details. <laughs> all the the yeah the seven syllable uh, microbes that live you know a pylori lactobacillus forty five ninety five twenty three yeah the one that's interesting well it Acamancia municifila um, which is a it's a um, mucus eating gut microbe and when people have a lot of it their bodies produce a lot of mucus. In the gut lining produces a lot of mucus, and that seems to prote protect the gut lining from uh, nasty substances that want that go through in through the gut into the bloodstream, irritate the immune system, and provoke the fat cells to take on more energy. So, um, if you don't have many Acamantia um, eosinophila, then that means that you don't produce much mucus, your gut lining is quite exposed, and more um, harmful um, compounds in your gut can get into your blood, they irritate your immune system, they tell your fat, your fat cells to take on more fat, and you're more likely to be obese. Um, wow. So there's a lot of work going on at the moment into whether that, um, whether that could be made into some kind of pill, and why sure. some people have more of it than other people. But uh, yeah, short answer would be eat more fiber if you want more acromancia. And whether that always works is a matter for debate. Yeah, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating topic, and and it's f from an outsider's non scientific perspective, it's it's really emerging. Um, you're seeing more testing for gut microbiome. Um, you know, we've had a couple of gut health. Uh, experts on this podcast talking about, um, you know, how to create a custom probiotic protocol to repair whatever's going on in your gut. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really interesting to me. Um, you know, natural stacks, which is the, the, the company that I work with, with this podcast has a probiotic, could they call it brain biotic? Um, because it's a probiotic that that studies have shown affects uh, cognitive abilities. Okay. You know, like I'm sure that I'm sure that there's some probiotic, there's some uh, microbe that leads to you know muscle gain or sex drive or you know fast twitch muscle fibers. It's just really fascinating to me, and hopefully, in five or ten or twenty years, we'll be sophisticated enough to know what we need to put into our gut to be the best people we can possibly be. Um, more, vir more virulent, you know, greater longevity, smarter, faster, bigger, stronger, totally optimal just based on our what's going on in our gut, like the mucus one, which is called again... Uh, Acomancia mucinophila. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um... Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and and for as many different um, microbes as there are that we know of, we could we could probably keep going on this. But for time, really appreciate your time here on the Optimal Performance Podcast. And I ask that everybody fill in the blank. This last question is a fill in the blank. Uh, Alana, based on everything that you know, what you've researched, whether it's catching bats or ticks on your feet or uh, the fact that we're 10 per, only 10% human, um, if you would please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing um, that their microbes run their bodies. <laughs> Perfect. Alana Collin, thank you so much for joining us today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really fun. And scene. <laughs> that was wonderful.
and it was wonderful. I really enjoyed our conversation. You know, it's one of the best parts about this podcast is that we're able to hear such a diverse view of optimal performance and optimal health. And for something as specific and minute, microscopic as cooties, bacteria, microorganisms, microbes on our skin and in our gut and all over our body. It's just fascinating. And the fact that she comes from a evolutionary biology standpoint makes it even more impressive because much like many of the stories of the experts that we come in contact to with on this podcast, she had a need. She wanted to figure out what was going on. She had a lot of antibiotics and uh, was forced to, to do her own research and decide to write a book based on what she found. Pretty fascinating stuff. I got a ton of information out of this podcast and I hope that it provided, you know, really accessible avenue for people to explore microbes and how to understand your your microbiome. So thank you everybody for listening. If you listen this far and you're still listening, if you would, please take one minute to give us just a quick review on iTunes. It means a lot for this podcast. And for me personally, apparently I need uh, I need the validation. <laughs> okay, everybody. Have a great week.